entire chapter, but if you look in verses 12 to 15, it says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord. Very important prepositional phrase there, in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Father, we sang it just a moment ago. Heirs of salvation, purchased of God, born of your spirit, washed in your blood, the blood of your son. And this is our story. This is our song. Father, I pray that we would continue to hear that story and that song in this sermon. For your glory and for our faith and capacities to magnify your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently saw a video of how an eagle fights a snake that well illustrates how we should engage in spiritual warfare. The eagle does not fight the snake on the ground. It picks the snake up, takes it into the sky, and there changes the battleground. In the sky, the snake has no stamina, it has no balance, it has no leverage, it has no power. It's useless. It's vulnerable. It's weak. Unlike on the ground, where the snake is powerful and cunning and deadly. Of course, the point of the analogy is change the battleground like the eagle Take your fight to the spiritual realm where God, as our king, fights our battles. Of course, Israel, in 1 Samuel 11, in fact, the entire book, is surrounded by enemies. On the west lies the Philistines. In fact, they had built a garrison in Saul's hometown, which is remarkable. Now on the east, we learn, is looming the Ammonites. But instead of taking their fight to the spiritual realm, Israel goes horizontal. They they believe in order to win their battles, they need a king like the other nations. And so at this point, God gives them what they desire. Delight yourselves in the world And the Lord just may give you the desires of your heart. Saul is the kind of king the nations would have chosen. And so Saul is anointed king. Uh, There is a coronation for king. For this king, Saul, even though he's hiding in the baggage at the coronation. And this is a high point, at least apparently so, in Israel's history. And hence they cry, long live the king. But in a fallen world. We all know this intuitively. We don't stay on the mountaintop very long. In a fallen world as fallen people, there will be daily reminders that we're vulnerable, that we're weak, 
and that we need our king to fight our battles. And that's the first thing we see in this passage, the Savior King required. It becomes very evident as we begin verse 1. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Now, Nahash is new to 1 Samuel. We've not read about him at this point. Interestingly, Nahash's name means snake or serpent. The serpent is attacking the seed of the woman, the people of God. And it's no stretch to say that in the Old Testament, the Ammonites are depicted as the seed of the serpent. Indeed, they have a contentious history with Israel going all the way back to the wilderness wanderings. We read in Deuteronomy 23 of their first conflict that Israel will have with the Ammonites. Most recently, they, they had repeatedly been aggressive against Israel in the book of Judges. Judges 3, Judges 10, Judges 11. But then the Spirit of the Lord had come upon Jephthah. And he had delivered Israel from the Ammonites. And in fact, he captured 20 cities of the Ammonites. You can read about that in Judges chapter 11. And so for these reasons and and many more, Nahash hates Israel. And he delights in making them fear. Now the men of Jabesh-Gilead initially seek to deal with the problem themselves. And what do they do? They, they offer Nahash this opportunity to cut a treaty with them. Uh, and, and that's such a, a haunting picture of the natural response that we as sinners have to our enemies. And we know our enemies from 1 John. is The world, the flesh, and the devil. And our natural response to these enemies is to is to negotiate with them, to compromise in order to to have immediate satisfaction, pleasure, and security, to get this enemy off our back. Relief, that's what we're after, above all things. But this was an appalling thing for the men of Jabesh-Gilead to do. They were, in effect, asking Nahash to be their king. You said, well, they already had a king. Saul had been appointed king. But understand, God replacements are never enough. You need more and more because no God replacement will ever deliver for you. We know that from Scripture. You know that experientially. Now, Nahash agrees to their terms with one addendum. Notice in verse 2. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition... I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel, on all Israel. Now, that seems to be so shocking. It should be. This is exactly how the Spirit intends for us to respond As insane as this deal is, 
is the insanity of looking to God replacements. Because God replacements will take more than your right eye. Now, in fact, when you give in to your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they will always want more and more of you. Now, to make a treaty is literally, in the Hebrew, to cut a treaty, which typically involved sacrificing animals. That's how these treaties, these covenants were made. There was always the shedding of blood, or generally the, the shedding of blood. And yet here, Nahash demands that they cut the treaty with men's eyes. Besides this treacherous act of decreation, and that's what it is, decreation and shame, uh, this act would have had two advantages. It would have given Nahash two advantages. First of all, they would have still had one eye in order to serve as his subjects, his slaves. But the second advantage is that we learn this from Josephus, the Jewish historian, who wrote, who wrote that the soldiers of the day fought in formation with interlocked shields. And the left eye was covered with the shield. And so if you gouge out the right eye, you can't see to fight. And so not only is he shaming them, He's doing something very practical. They can serve him as their slaves, as his slaves, and yet they can't rebel against him. They can't fight. And this reflects the dangerous evil world in which we live, doesn't it? We're being reminded every day, even today with the, the discussions, the normalization of late-term abortion in many places in our country. Prayerfully, it's not being normalized in your mind. But it just reminds us of how dangerous and evil this world is. Now, all abortion is sinful and wicked, but late-term abortion should seem even flagrant to a pagan who does not have a Christian worldview. We saw what happened in New York a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago where you have uh, the law that is passed where a, a baby can be aborted up to the time of birth. Now, this week... In Virginia, they proposed an abortion bill that would permit abortions while the mother is giving birth if it's in the best interest of the mother's mental health. In fact, the Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, he's been in the news, my goodness. Here's what he says. He says, if a mother's in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and family desired. That is the spirit of Nahash, the serpent. Nahash, the snake. And, and so what we see here, instead of immediately rejecting the deal, they're going to negotiate for two additional concessions. Notice in verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Remarkable that they would be willing to give themselves up to Nahash. But notice the key word here is save. 
The word save or salvation is found three times in this chapter. Verse 3, verse 9, and verse 13. But this is a parody of salvation. Why do I say that? Because they have misdiagnosed the problem. Israel doesn't recognize that Nahash is a symptom. He's not the problem. The problem is idolatry. Remember what God told Abraham. He promised Abraham and his seed, which is Israel. He said, I will curse those who curse you. That's the promise. That's the promise Israel had. And yet, rather than cursing Nahash, Nahash was now taking dominion over Israel. Why? Because Israel had turned from their God. That was the problem. Remember what Samuel had said in chapter 10, verse 19. Today you have rejected your God. This was at the coronation. Who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. They had rejected the rule of God. And therefore, they're under the dominion of their enemy. And as if to demonstrate the, the truthfulness of his words, in this crisis, the elders don't take the snake to the spiritual realm. They don't cry out to God. And as a result, they, they agree to give themselves up to this enemy if they don't find a savior. Which is what we do when we don't take our battles to the king. And we all have battles, don't we? Internal battles, battles from without. We do the same thing. Well, that brings us to verses 4 to 11. We've seen the, the Savior King required. Now we're going to see the Savior King revealed. Notice in verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Notice they're not looking for Saul. It's remarkable. It's not clear why. But the people are weeping. But they do come to the place where Saul is. Verse 5, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. He had not implemented the tax system yet. And so he's still farming at this point. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. So do you see the situation here? There is horrific violence threatened. Bondage is threatened. And Saul has been appointed king. But now even in his hometown, they're not looking for Saul. In one sense, it makes sense because they would have remembered what had taken place in this very city. Back in Judges 19.21, without getting graphic, a, a young woman was... Abused by a gang. It was gang violence. It was, took place the entire night. She ended up dying. It ended up leading to a bloody civil war in Israel. So this wasn't the place you would have looked for a, a deliverer. And yet we know at this point that Saul is their deliverer. Even though he does not seem to know God. He does not seem to have a relationship in a saving way to the Lord. 
But the Lord is going to use him. And he's going to use him to do two things with Israel. It's important. He's going to use Saul to deliver Israel and to discipline Israel. In other words, even through this this king who does not know God, God will be merciful and kind, but he will also discipline. And that's what scripture teaches. His mercy, his goodness, and his discipline is what leads his people to repentance. And so Saul is farming. He hears the news. And the situation is about to change. But it's not because of Saul. There's a wink wink here. It's very clearly. It's not because of Saul. It's because of God's mercy. Notice in verse 6. And the spirit of God. Rushed upon Saul. When he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. It should have already been kindled. The Philistines have set up a garrison in his hometown. He should have already been angry. But that wasn't natural to Saul. He was indifferent to these things until the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And to use the language of chapter 10, Saul was literally turned into another man. Doesn't mean he was converted, it just means that his inclinations. We're now changed. He went from a man hiding in the baggage at his coronation to a warrior king. But he wasn't some artesian well in which this just naturally flowed up from within him. This was the sovereign grace, the sovereign mercy of God's spirit. Indeed, the connection between God's spirit and his wrath on sin is very clear throughout the scriptures. And when God's spirit comes on a person, it's always for the benefit of his people. And yet at the same time, the text is casting a shadow on Saul. How is the text doing that? Well, it refers here to the spirit of God and not to the spirit of the Lord. That's important. The spirit of God. God is the same being, but God is the non-covenantal name. It's the name that even an unbeliever might recognize. But the Spirit of the Lord, that's the covenantal name. And the reason I believe this is clear is because of this. Five times in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord is said to come upon a person. We see it first of all in Judges 3 with Othniel, the first judge. A great judge. And then you see the spirit of the Lord coming upon Gideon. And then Jephthah. And then David. Samson as well. But the spirit of God is said to come upon only one other person in the Old Testament. Besides Saul. Balaam. The false prophet. Numbers 24 verse 2. And yet with the Spirit of God on him, Saul responds with an act that was reminiscent of the priest in Judges 19 to 21 when his girlfriend was abused and put to death. Notice in verse 7, there's an intentional link here, in fact, between this chapter and Judges. 
the book of Judges and Judges 19 to 21 in particular. In verse 7 it says, He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces. If you remember Judges, that's what the, the, the priest does with the girl who was abused. And sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel. At this point he's under the submission of Samuel. So shall it be done to this, his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. And they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek. The people of Israel were 300,000. And the men of Judah 30,000. Even here you're seeing a distinction. Between. Even though they're one person. Or one, one country. One nation. There's, there's this distinction between Israel and Judah. In fact when the, the nation is split in two. It will be Israel and Judah and Benjamin. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, Jabesh they were glad. By the way, that's what makes a glad heart. Is salvation. But you have to know your dire state before you can be saved. They were glad when they heard the gospel. They heard the good news of their salvation. Verse 10. Therefore the men of Jabesh said tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. Speaking to the Ammonites. And you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now. Are they lying here? That's a, We could spend a lot of time here. They're just not telling the full truth. If a savior does not come, they would give themselves up. But remember this. The enemies of God will not steward the truth we give them. And so in war, there may be times where they are not owed the truth. So whether they're lying or just not giving a full truth, that's what happens here. And notice in verse 11. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning, morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The point, God has delivered Israel not because they had a king like the nations. God had delivered Israel because of his mercy, communicated by his omnipotent spirit, just as he had done in the time of the, the judges. But the text also signals with language very reminiscent of the time of Judges that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed even from the time of the Judges. And what was the theme of the Judges? In those days they had no king. And they did that which was right in their own eyes. Yes, Saul is their king. But he's not the king envisioned in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 is the covenantal stipulations of the true king that would come. He's not a Torah man. He's not a man who will be dependent and desperate for the law of God. At best, all he can offer is what the judges offered themselves. The text is slowly unfolding a defense and an apologetic for a greater king to come. Who will be David? David will be that Deuteronomy 17 king in shadow form. But for now. This is the high point. It doesn't get any higher for Saul. This is the high point of Saul's 
rain. And that brings us to verses 12 to 15. As a result of what God has done, not what Saul has done, the kingdom is renewed. Notice in verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And so with the influence of Samuel, Saul gives the credit to the Lord. That's what makes reading Saul so difficult. There are moments that appears that he's, he's on the same page with the prophet. And there are moments of utter rebellion. It gets worse and worse by the time you get to the end of the Saul narrative. His whole life is consumed with trying to kill David, who is the seed of the woman. But for now, this is a type. He says, today is the day of salvation. Today is not the day of judgment. And that's exactly what Jesus said about his first advent. Listen to what he says in John 12. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's what Jesus said about his first advent. But there's coming a day when God will judge the world in the person of Christ. But this is not the day. This is the day of salvation. And that's a word to everyone here today who's never trusted in Christ. The Bible says there is hope. For every sinner, today is the day of salvation. If you will just, if you will humbly confess your sin against God and recognize that God has made provision for your sin in his son, Jesus Christ. If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, his cross, his resurrection, the Bible says you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. This is the day of salvation. And that's what Saul is saying. This is the day... We should be rejoicing in God's salvation. And that's the context in which Samuel calls Israel to renew the kingdom. Beautiful language. Notice in verses 14 and 15. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal. There they made Saul king before the Lord. That's important in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel Rejoiced greatly. So what is this kingdom that Samuel is calling them to renew? Well, this kingdom has already been mentioned in chapter 10. And what needs renewing? Is their devotion and commitment to the Lord as king. They had rejected God as their king. But this battle had made it very clear that it was the Lord who had won the battle for them. Saul did nothing more than what the judges did when the Spirit came upon the judges. Of course, they had already crossed the Rubicon. They now had this human king. But the issue wasn't in having a king. The issue was the fact that God had rejected, or Israel had rejected God as king. And so the issue here was... Israel's re-embrace of the Lord as their ultimate king. Now, here's the question. Can they have a human king without nullifying the kingly rule of the Lord? That's the question. That's the question that's being posed. Well, Samuel would say, that's the only way they can have a human king. 
and flourish. Notice this language of before the Lord. That's why in verse 15, it says, they made Saul king before the Lord. He wasn't to be a king like the nations. He was to be a king before the king. That's the point of chapter 12. We'll see next week. And they seem to get it. They offer peace offerings to reestablish, restore their fellowship with the Lord. But the truth be told, this chapter is the high point of Saul's reign. He will not be a king before the king. A greater one will be needed. But for now, let's offer these implications from this passage. Closing implications, if you will. First of all, the enemy is real. That's a very important implication from this passage. The enemy is real. In fact, this enemy is behind the actions of Nahash, the snake. But he's more dangerous than Nahash. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Yes, there are flesh and blood realities. But behind the flesh and blood are greater realities. Paul describes this enemy in three ways. First of all, this enemy is powerful. He says our struggles against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of darkness, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our enemy is powerful. Second, our enemy is wicked. Paul says these are forces of evil. Not only that, our enemy is cunning. Paul describes his ways as methods, as schemes. And he is always at work. Let me give you some signs that he might be at work in your life and in your family. Unusual conflict in your marriage. Unusual conflict in your family. Recurring Uninvited temptations, strong discouragement, strong discontentment, and defeat. Crippling doubts, changes of focus and priority, where at one time you were committed to the Word of God, the people of God, the church, and now there's this this drift from that commitment. Prayer struggles. The enemy does not want you to pray. Reading struggles. The enemy does not want you to renew your mind in the word of God. This increasing critical spirit towards perhaps people in your family or people in your church family. John Blanchard says, We are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest Outfight the strongest and outwit the wisest. Williams Firsto in 1666, in a remarkable book on spiritual warfare, gives six reasons why the enemy is so effective at what he does. First of all, he is a spiritual being, which means he can prey on your mind. 
He is a spiritual being, and he can prey on your mind. The battlefield is the mind. That's why we have to renew our minds. We have this tendency to exchange the truth about God for a lie. We saw that last week. Second, his experience. Over the centuries, he's mastered the art of wickedness. He's much more experienced than anyone here. Third, his tireless energy for promoting evil. He's one-track minded. John says he does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. It's the only reason he shows up. To steal, kill, and destroy. Fourth, he has an army of demons. And these demons are devoted to him. They have the same commitments he has. Fifth, Satan's evil suggestions are nearly indistinguishable from our corrupt desires. So his suggestions meet at the place of our desires that have not been renewed by the word of God. And they become virtually indistinguishable. And then sixth, he is skilled at matching his suggestions with our corrupt reason. He is skilled at matching his suggestions with our corrupt reason. And so our enemy is real and more dangerous than Nahash. Second, are under attack, our natural tendency is to fight these battles with God replacements. That's why in your marriage, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. That's signaling. You have a Saul you're looking to. You, you have a Messiah Savior replacement that you actually think insanely will deliver you. It will only get worse and worse and worse until you are destroyed. Let us learn from Israel here. But third, most importantly, this is crucial. The New Testament only uses warfare language after it has revealed to us God's appointed king who has already won the victory. Indeed, Jesus' cross and his resurrection spelled the enemy's doom. His return will seal it. It spelled the enemy's doom. What does that mean? If you're a believer, you are more than conqueror. Your marriage does not have to be under the dominion of sin. Your life does not have to be. He has not only purchased the penalty, he has paid for your penalty. He has overcome the power of sin for you. And no matter how difficult your circumstances are, they can't put Jesus back in the grave. He is forever at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. And his spirit is omnipotent. So his work has spelled it. His return will seal it. But understand, we live between those two events. His cross and his resurrection, D-Day, and his return, V-Day. Our ultimate victory is secure because of the finished work of Jesus. 
His sin-bearing, punishment-suffering, hell-enduring death and His resurrection from the grave has delivered you from the power of darkness. That's your victory. And yet we are still in a real fight, fighting real enemies. And so we are to learn from Israel's example. It is absolutely insane to go horizontal when you have a king who is victorious, who is your advocate. And so what we have to do is to refuse the daily temptation to exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's what you're doing. That's what Paul says is the problem, Romans 1.25. Refuse the daily temptation to exchange the truth about God for a lie and bow to his rule as expressed by his true king, Jesus. Determine every day to realign your thoughts, your affections, your will under his rule. A rule communicated by the word of God. That's what we have to go to war for. Realign. As I said last week, I wake up every day naturally exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Which means before my feet hit the floor... I'm going to war to renew my mind and exchange the lie with the truth. And one of the central means that God has given us is the table. The table brings us back to reality, doesn't it? In a beautiful and glorious way. And so as we come to the table today, I want you to think about that. Lord, this isn't just something we do on the first Sunday of every month. This is an act of war. Because there's someone more cunning and powerful and evil than Nahash that wants my soul. He wants my family's soul. He wants my marriage. He wants everything. He has not come except to kill, steal, and destroy. So the table brings us back to reality where we exchange these lies about who God is for the truth. And the truth is a person. Who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As we come to the table, there's some of you who are visiting with us. And we would love for you to participate with us upon a couple of conditions. You've been born again. You've trusted in Christ as your Savior. He's your King. He's your Lord. He's your Master. And you're a member in good standing of a church that believes that. That teaches that gospel. Let's bow our heads as we approach this time.